How are you? I hope you're having a fantastic day. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded, ancestral, and traditional Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Saira Unju, and I have a wonderful show for you today. We're going to start with some shoutouts, and then we're going to have a review Actually, so we have a new member, our new correspondent, Jade, very so very kindly recorded a shout out for us, and Jade also has a review of Art Downtown. After Jade's review, we have Sylvana's or Gallery Curating Wild Black um, review slash she's going to be talking about it. And then we have a review and an interview, I'm pretty sure, from Lua. So... Uh, before I ramble even more than I usually do because I tend to do that, let's get into the shoutouts, shall we? <laughs> Our first shoutout goes to Arts Club's I Claudia. The Arts Club is putting on I Claudia by the Canadian playwright Kristen Thompson. This play is a ten- tender journey through preteenhood. <laughs> the teas are not happening today. <laughs> Claudia, at the verge of 13, is struggling to fit in. Her favorite days are Mondays because she sees her dad, who is also her best friend, but now he is getting married. The role of Claudia and all the other characters are are played by Lily Baudouin and Marie Farsi. Oh my god, Marie Farsi? Marie Farsi will be making her directorial debut with the company. I, Claudia, will be running from June 22nd to August 15th at the Arts Club's Newmont stage at the BMO Theatre, which is in Olympic Village, for anyone who doesn't know. And you can get your tickets at artsclub.com. Our second shout-out of the day goes to Steveston Heritage Sites. This summer, history comes to life with Steveston's Heritage Sites. Britannia Shipyards, London Heritage Farm, and the Steveston Museum are open, offering visitors the chance to experience these heritage sites and their fascinating history, complete with costumed guides and engaging exhibits, kid-friendly programs, and an on-site food truck. You can get more information at richmond.ca. Finally, we have a shout-out for the Queer Arts Festival. QAF 2021 is happening across the Lower Mainland between July 24th and August 13th. The festival opening is Art Party on Saturday, July 24th between 7 and 10 p.m. It is a gala opening at the Sanwa Center in Chinatown. 
And the events in the festival include It's Not Easy Being Green, Created Visual Art Exhibition, Language as a Virus, Queer Isolation Stories, which is an interactive audio radio network sound work, and Queerotica, which is a rooftop readings. And there's so much more. You can check out the festival and get your tickets or your festival passes at queerartsfestival.com. And for our final shout out of the day, I will leave it to Jade and then we will get on with the show. I hope you enjoy. Hello, I wanted to give a quick shout out to my friend Semi, who created an amazing installation at Nelson Park, a great way to commemorate the start of Pride season in Vancouver. Right as you enter through Thurgold Street, you will find a small garden of flowers and concrete stones engraved with messages of love to trans individuals and communities. It's absolutely delightful and I think you should check it out. It's only gonna be up for one week, so go take a look. train and came up at Waterfront Station, just a few minutes away from the Vancouver Convention Center. There was a small flow of people walking through paintings and easels engaging in, from what I could see, very positive conversations. It's only a few days after a heat wave and the hottest day of the year. The sun is at its highest point and the patios are pouring with people. We are on the edge of downtown Vancouver, looking over the ferries and the ships. The sea bus is arriving at the station and you can see the magnificent mountains towering over the beautiful North Vancouver landscape from across the water. Crows and seagulls are in the air as people parole the Jackpole Plaza. People have come from far and wide and by chance stumbled upon a peculiar but beautiful sight. Welcome to Art Downtown. Now, let's delve into today's review. Art Downtown is an outdoor event where different artists get to display their art in parts of downtown Vancouver. You get to see loads of different artists from all over BC, and there is a variety of things to see ranging from paintings to sculptures. Sometimes there's also live music. I wanted to share my experience attending Art Downtown, and also I got a chance to speak with and meet lots of lovely people behind the curtain who bring the magic to this event. So I really wanted to talk about mainly what I saw and also what I found so special and significant about this happening. Paintings are put on display at the center of the plaza. Filled with its usual crowd, the empty space had become an outdoor gallery for contemporary art and local artists. People engaged themselves in conversations about the art and how it made them feel. Some left with cherished paintings, others left with business cards and posters. There was a lot to see. I overheard a conversation between a sculptor and a guest. The guest now felt inspired to collect driftwood to make similar looking sculptures. 
This refers to a display um, of sculptures containing wildlife and human figures, which were made entirely of sea debris. This display gave the space a whimsical touch. The paintings gave lots of life to the city. I had a brief conversation with a young man who stated his desire for more public art programs like Art Downtown. Unfortunately, he believed that there is a limited appearance of events like this, and all the art is usually hidden behind the walls of galleries and museums. And although they, that these institutions may indicate that they serve the public, access to the resources they have is often restricted. I was discussing with a gallery owner, Julia Tho of Spring Fine Art from Vietnam, who displayed works I really fell in love with. She was telling me about how rice paper will make the art last for centuries. She pointed out one of her paintings, which she said invoked childlike feelings or feelings of innocence in anyone that looked at them. And to be honest, I felt it too. It was great to know that others felt what I was feeling, but more importantly, the artist shared that intention with me as well. The two figures that were framed in this picture embraced each other very closely as they sat beneath the leaves of a banana tree. It was so pure and I'm so glad I got to see that on a random summer afternoon. There were a lot of established artists, but it was also nice to see many young artists some of which have no established career yet. They were exploring their style and their career as artists. I was amazed by Lilia Shania. She had some stunning oil paintings, which invoked the spirits of Picasso and Dali. She was still exploring her style and topic, but her inspirations were very clear. I also met Carmen McLeod. She specializes in landscape paintings. She showed me a Bob Ross painting she did. Um, and by Bob Ross painting, I, I don't mean like a painting of Bob Ross. I mean a painting tutorial that she followed um, by Bob Ross um, that she did with a makeup brush. It was so outstanding to see um, young people be a part of this process, but also see the ways that the famous artists we already know are still inspiring, emerging and upcoming artists of this generation. What really dawned on me was that this event was an opportunity for people to connect and learn, especially because you get to see artists learn from other artists, as well as guests learning from those same artists. Um, you also get to know more about the individual process of each artist because they are also encouraged to paint while they display their work. This brings me to an important point about the role of art and the improvement of mental health in our communities. My mind keeps going back to how great it felt to just sit in the sun, get some of that good old vitamin D, and just look at beautiful paintings. Everyone was smiling, present, and engaged. Even just the scenery, man. It was beautiful to witness. Especially seeing all the kids, some of who probably were dealt the greatest blow of this period of social isolation. They were so impressed with literally any type of painting. And if I was an artist and I saw a kid react that excitedly to my work, I would be so flattered. 
To come across a space where art is valued in the open and to see the ways communities are engaged highlights the powerful impact of the Art Downtown Summer Program. The city of Vancouver has achieved an outstanding response to vaccinations following the restrictions of social gatherings that came up during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, people are more than ever excited to catch up on the events and the social interactions that they have been missing out on. To me, this was so significant because after this year, we've all um, had some time to think. And I think we all deserve some access to the therapeutic gift of art and an open community for celebration and connection. So I'd say it was a kid-friendly, COVID-safe, and immersive experience. It engages all of your senses from sight to smell. It is located in a commercial location with lots of eateries and bars, so you can spend as much time as you want and explore the rest of the area. Art Downtown sets up every Tuesday at Vancouver Art Gallery and every Wednesday at Friday at the Vancouver Convention Center Jack Pole Plaza from 10 to 5.30. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. I hope you enjoyed that review. And with that review, Jade is part of us. Jade is now in our little arts report family, which I'm really happy that that she's here this is amazing anyways so now we're gonna go into a quick ad and psa break and when i say quick i mean quick you know our ads and psas are never long after that i am pretty sure we have silvana's um or gallery segment and then after silvana i will be back with the rest of the show enjoy Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. TransCare BC works to enhance the coordination of trans health services across the province and offer expanded health services to support transgender communities. They are doing this by developing gender-affirming client-centered models of service, ensuring access to gender-affirming and supportive healthcare that is equitable and available, and supporting network development to make sure trans and gender-diverse individuals, their families, and healthcare providers have access to information, resources, and support. Check out phsa.ca to learn more about this program and lend your voice to help create an inclusive and supportive system for trans members of our community. Hello everyone, it's Silvana, finally again with a review for you. Um, I know it's been a long time. It certainly has been a really busy couple of months and I haven't done a review in a while, but I'm really happy to announce today that I am reviewing the first in-person event that I have assisted in a long, long time. 
I went to the Aura Gallery, which is now around Chinatown. Before, it used to be located in Hamilton Street. And I also covered um, an event in the past in 2019 at the old location of the Aura Gallery. Right now, they moved to a new location. Is It is 236 Pender Street. And... It was an incredible experience because I hadn't really been in the same physical space as other people sharing arts and culture content. Um, so I was really, really excited to be to have the opportunity to, to attend a fabulous discussion with Black curator Dominic Fontaine. And so the Aura Gallery, to give you some context today, is hosting... Uh, an exhibition called Wild Black, a forum for speculation on what the gallery can't hold. Um, this project was organized by curators Charles Campbell, Michelle Jacques, and Denise Reiner. And they were also uh, present at the event with Dominique Fontaine. Uh, the exhibition has been up since June 11, <laughs> which is my birthday. <laughs> And it will still be up and running up until August 14, 2021. So you have a lot of time to go visit the Aura Gallery. As you, as I said before, you can go in person, which is fantastic. Um, they do have other events, just like uh, the talk that I assisted um, with curator Dominic Fontaine. Um, they will have other like conversatories and events that you can also register to and attend to uh, from your computer. They were also transmitting the, um, the event last Saturday through, I guess it was a Zoom or some sort of some sort of online platforms to also include people outside of the gallery space. But it was all very respectful. People were wearing masks. Um, but it was just a very fabulous environment uh, and I was really excited to be there, really grateful to uh, be able to hear from Dominique Fontaine herself. Um, to give you more context about Dominique, she was born in Haiti and she also went to university at the University of Ottawa. Um, from the start of her presentation, she showed us all a picture of when she was little, when she was a baby. Um, and she just had this really particular look, just um, staring at the camera. And she mentioned, oh, this is how I know that I had my gaze, my curatorial eye from a very young age. Um, and about Haiti, she mentioned... First, um, that she gets a lot of inspiration from artists, critics, and curators, um, especially from the diaspora, from the African diaspora, from uh, different artists in the Caribbean as well, um, and Black Canadians. Um, someone that she specifically mentioned was Michel Rolf Trulio. I'm not sure how to pronounce this name. I'm not, I do not know French. <laughs> I wish I did. Um, and his work with silencing the past. And so this text was really influential in her curatorial practice because she wants to bring up many voices that have been silenced um, 
throughout history and throughout the years and especially in um, gallery spaces and art spaces um, but also public spaces she also um, she also talked about projects that she's done with public space which I thought was fascinating um, about Haiti as well she mentions how the Caribbean is global how um, she always thought about the connections um, at the global scale um, and this is why she has never really worked um, kind of national based so never really just like oh Canada or just Haiti or um, things like that she has a lot of um, she has a broad international experience with curating and working with artists from different backgrounds and um, in different places. So she mentioned projects in Senegal, for instance, Descartes. Um, she mentioned, for instance, uh, participating in 98 and the Biennale of Contemporary African Art um, multiple other times. She also curated once in Amsterdam and in Paris. Um, but also, of course, she has a lot of experience um, curating and being involved in projects and galleries within Canada. Um, she mentioned Montreal a lot. Fontaine is herself based in Montreal. Um, and... One of the projects that I was most interested in that she talked about was, I can't remember what the name exactly it was because it wasn't French, but um, I speak Spanish and what I understood was kind of like, like a white cloud. Um, and it was with Scotiabank in Montreal. And this was a project, a public art project um, from 2014 where she emphasized play and participation and bringing out to the public um, and visitors of different audiences that maybe do not always um, go to gallery spaces or um, museum spaces so they, they can have a, a direct connection to the community and the issues that artists want to share with people at a broader scale. Um, I found this really fascinating because she showed pictures of the different, the different art forms that were uh, installed in along different places in Montreal, um, and for this um, 2014 uh, public art event specifically, she also worked with um, a variety of different artists from different backgrounds, um, and they all had different messages. Um, that were strategically placed around the city. So one that I thought was pretty fascinating was one called Made in China. Uh, I can't remember the artist who did this specifically, but um, she mentioned the importance of when dealing with public art being collaborative and really using the public in public art as activation so as a way of not only involving audiences but also involving the community the people in the immediate neighborhoods or um, in the immediate stores and for this made in china project um, there were a lot of clothing items that were just like hanging 
from um, a really tall like part of a building and going down kind of filling up this whole space between two buildings in Montreal that had um, their own businesses and part of the project part of what the artists did um, was involving people from these businesses into um, collecting the pieces of clothing they were all clothing that was made in China and so about public space uh, she mentioned not just the scale that is important for public art um, and taking into account the surrounding and the context of the area of the city where this is being um, shown but also the importance of public art in creating bridges and dialogue about different topics um, and bringing this private side of it into the public so in this with this made in china piece um, there is all these individual pieces of clothing each with its own story and it kind of puts it out there for people to start a conversation um, perhaps about um, the fast fashion industry or, or the lives that go into making our clothing from the everyday. Um, I thought this was really fascinating for me specifically. Of course, Dominique Fontaine did talk about a lot more um, in her experiences with art and curating. Um, something that I thought was also really relevant to um, the conversation today was an exhibit called Off Africa, which was a multi-platform project and multi-layered museum space um, that was meant to talk about Africa and the Black diaspora in a way that brings not just dignity, but also accountability to the institution of the museums themselves. This was in Toronto. I can't remember the name of the museum itself where this was um, exhibited. But basically in this same museum back in 1989, there was an exhibition that portrayed Africa and the people of Africa with a very demeaning tone and this really created a rupture with the black community and part of part of the off africa project was not just to curate um, pieces from african artists and artists from the diaspora that showed this new side of africa one with um with needs but also with desires and also with agency which is something that maybe in the past wasn't really taken into account. Um, part of the Off Africa project was organizing a formal apology from the museum to activists that back in 1989 had protested this exhibition. Um, and this way it showed accountability, it showed, it showed the resilience of the black community. And it shows that when Black people are involved in curating and organizing space, but also telling their own stories, there is a lot more that, that can be added to the conversation. Um, this, of course, makes me think about the truth and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada and how 
many times um, it starts with an apology, but it is including the voices of BIPOC and Indigenous peoples in these conversations and in the spaces themselves um, to tell their own stories, to show their own their own strengths and their own desires um, that is so important into filling up this um, this narrative that other people have imposed often on colonized groups and marginalized groups. Um, so I think overall the conversation with um, Dominic Fontaine was really eye-opening. I learned a lot. Um, she is definitely such a fantastic curator i admire her so much <laughs> and i think her work is so so important um i think it was a great way of starting the series of events that will be going on at the aura gallery as part of the wild black forum and to make us further reflect on what it means to be black and tell black stories in the art world and the gallery spaces but also in public space um definitely dominique's story and her portfolio of work shows the importance of having people that are not only um very keen into research and having social networks that connect um people along the diaspora um from so many different parts of the world um, in conversation within gallery spaces, but also outside of them. Um, definitely having um, Black curators is fundamental to uh, expand narratives about different peoples, especially Black people um, in Canada, as we can see through the Wild Black exhibition and uh, forum. So if you have the time from here to August 15, I, I mean August 14, which I know you do, <laughs> please go visit the Aura Gallery and check out their website to see whether you can register to future events and hear from fantastic people such as Dominic Fontaine and other Black artists and curators that will provide a lot more insight into their experiences in contemporary art and the visual art world. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I hope you enjoyed this review. Bye bye! Hello! Welcome back! I am back. I hope you enjoyed that review that Silvana did. And make sure you check out Or Gallery. They're pretty cool. And you can uh, stop by their store too. I think Silvana mentioned to me that when she went for the event that she bought a book from their store. So it's pretty cool. Go check it out. But yeah, so uh, on to our next thing. Up next, we have Lua's little review and interview. Um slash segment <laughs> and before that though we are gonna go into a quick Adam PSA break I'm sorry we have to but again they're short so it's fine so yeah I'll see you well you'll you'll hear Lua right after the Adam PSA break and then I will be right back for the end of the show enjoy
Red Cat Records is an amazing artist-owned and operated record store. Shop from their diverse online music collection and get free shipping within Vancouver and the Lower Mainland with the purchase of two or more LPs. If you would like to further support them through the evolving COVID-19 crisis, you can do so by buying a gift card to use at a later date. Visit www.redcat.ca for more information. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm looking. Discorder Magazine has been supporting independent music for over 30 years, and it keeps on living by joining efforts with local music supporters such as Vinyl Records. You can find a selection of Vinyl Records' featured albums on the back cover of Discorder and can support your favorite local bands and artists by purchasing their records. For more information on their vast selection of new, used, and rare music, go to vinylrecords.ca. Hello everyone, this is Lil Pneziju and I'm so happy to be here today and today we'll be talking about Hold Fast, Stay Gold, which is a short docu-series documenting the history of custom tattooing in Canada over the past 30 years. It's available now on YouTube entirely for free, which is pretty awesome. And so this series was created by Dave Allen and Jody Hill and it focuses on the generational and specifically the oral history passed down from each tattoo artist to their apprentice. And overall, the series gives you a snapshot into one of the many sides of tattoo culture. You see, tattoo culture today, or tattooing today, is really mainstream. But watching the series really reminded me of where tattooing comes from and why there was such a taboo around it for so many years and why, you know, ultimately, it wasn't very mainstream. The series is done beautifully. It feels really intimate at moments with interviews that really capture some of these very personal stories that these tattoo artists are telling. And so today I had the privilege to talk to Dave Allen, the Canadian tattoo artist who's also the director of the series. He is based on Kelowna. And so without further ado, I'm going to leave you guys with that interview. Hi, Dave. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good too. And so I think the first thing that I'd like to hear from you is like, how would you describe the series in your own words? Oh man. So I, I would probably say what we're doing is a, we're chronicling the rise of custom tattooing in Canada. That's probably the quickest way to explain it. You can, like you mentioned, you know, back in the day, tattooing was completely different than it is today. So we were really curious, how did it get there? You know, and, from my experience in the industry, most of the people that hold the information, uh, they just share it with people close to them. It's never written down or recorded in any way. So uh, we set out to piece together all the information we could to figure out that story. That's awesome. And so this is a, a passion project by you and Jody. And um, I'm just curious, like what inspired you guys to kind of like do it like really make this become a docu series yeah uh jody's a videographer and uh has worked in that industry for a long time and i'm a tattooist and he started out as my client we became friends and we talked about doing some kind of work together and the tattoo industry was a natural fit for us but we couldn't figure out what direction to really go in and it was after doing some preliminary interviews that we realized what that story was and for myself I know a lot of these old 
tattooers, you know, um, their importance is obviously understated uh, today, but I knew there was a, this timeline of how tattooing, it started with somebody, you know, like there was at some point, nobody was doing custom tattooing. And then along the way, we were all custom tattooers. So I really wanted to get at that and um, make sure that these guys aren't forgotten. You know, it's, when they die, their stories die with them, sadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really cool thing to document so much of oral history, especially now in an age of media where we can actually document all of this oral history. Uh, something that impressed me or like just I was just like, oh, wow, <laughs> while I was watching this show is like um, when they mentioned I was like, oh, yeah, he charged like two dollars for a tattoo. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> That's crazy. Two dollars for a tattoo. That's wild. <laughs> Yeah, you know, tattooing was, they didn't have a choice. Tattooing wasn't a popular medium. You know, like you had to have low prices to get a client. You know, <laughs> like who's going to spend their, you know, $50 back in 1962 to get a tattoo? You know, it'd be, it'd be a lot of money for something that no one in, in your community is going to support. And so, Dave, you, how long have you been a tattoo artist? Uh, I've been in the tattoo industry since uh, the late 90s. That's awesome. And so I was just curious, like, what are your thoughts um, on this changing tattoo culture from, you know, even before you started and from when you started to now? Well, it's crazy. Uh, you know, when I first started getting heavily tattooed, people wouldn't ride the elevator or sit on the bus beside me. But, uh, you know, it was total social pariah status. And today, you know, I have parents bringing their kids in to get tattooed and grandparents coming in and getting tattooed. It's, it's so different. And there's so many tattoo shops everywhere. You know, there used to be, you know, three or four shops in Vancouver. Now there's three or four shops on every block. It's, you, you trip over them like donut shops. It's, uh, <laughs> the, the change is really the saturation and the, the mainstreaming of it. So you can imagine what life inside a tattoo shop is like now when everything's been mainstream compared to what it was like back in the day when it was really like, you know, it was a subculture, but it was more than that. It was outlaw bikers. It was skate punks. It was, you know, outsiders who just didn't fit in that nice tidy square that society creates. Um, they're real rebels. You know, it was a, a really cowboy thing to do to tattoo people. You didn't get any support from the government. You didn't get any support from your business community and you didn't get any support from your family. So you were, you know, you were really out there by yourself and exposing yourself to wild people. Like the people getting tattooed back then compared to now is totally different, completely different. You have some interesting people getting tattooed still, but back then that's all you had. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't really imagine I'm tattooed and I'm like, watching the episodes and looking at the tattoo styles and I, I think they're beautiful but I know that if that was the only tattoo style that existed I'd be like hmm, I don't think that's for me <laughs> yeah absolutely right and uh it's just so crazy to think what is available today compared to back then it was a really narrow scope of art back then you know like it was a sailor craft it was like a outsider biker craft um I mean it was really the bikers that brought that in Canada anyway, that uh, uh, custom culture into it, which is, uh, we can't thank them enough for that. Uh, it was definitely a different style than we see today, but 
that was really the the switch. Mm -hmm. And when you uh, say the custom culture, could you give a little bit more insight on what you mean with that? Yeah, absolutely. So in regards to tattooing, uh, prior to the early 70s, late 60s, you'd walk into a tattoo shop and you would pick a design off the wall. And the artist either had hand painted those designs himself and he'd inherited those designs from other tattooers and other tattoo shops, but they were pretty, uh, you know, they were mostly palm size. Uh, they were really heavy outline, uh, strong black shading and color, really simplistic. Uh, it's, it's a style that is still popular today, uh, but back then you could only pick a design off the wall. And then what happened with custom culture was you had these younger artists coming into the craft and their clients and themselves wanted something different, something that wasn't on the wall. They had ideas, they had artistic ability to go with it and they would draw up your idea on your skin and you would get a completely original tattoo. So at the time you had things like, you know, Frank Frazetta, who was a, a fantasy painter and, um, the sci-fi movement and hippies and bikers, their tastes were quite a bit different than that older generation. So they, they wanted something different. So the few young tattooers that were savvy um, kind of headed in that direction. They still had flash because people still want to pick stuff off the wall, but they were really uh, headed towards that larger scale uh, full body, maybe not full body, but full arm or full leg style of tattoo. Custom work is always really cool to see and to see how it develops and to see the series and how it's developed over time is also you're just really fascinating overall. And so about the series itself, what do you think is the importance in creating it, in having it out there? I mean, beyond uh, capturing what these older pioneers were doing you know they're, they're out there on the vanguard breaking down doors and everything it's always important to pay tribute to those people but more so than that i think we find ourselves in a tattoo culture today that we take for granted and we don't understand that there was people out there really sacrificing a lot and putting in a lot of effort to make it the way it is today so young tattooers and young uh, people getting tattooed who didn't have the benefit of meeting these people or working in those shops, getting tattooed in those shops. It's good for them to have uh, a sense of the history that they belong to. So tattooing has a rich history that dates back, you know, almost 10,000 years that we're aware of. Uh, so we, we need to have a connection to that as well. There's an indigenous tattooing in Canada that has never disappeared and is seeing a real, amazing resurgence right now uh and i think we can learn from that within modern tattooing as well that if we have a connection to our past we can make better choices moving forward and understand that the choices we make to mark ourselves is connected to something bigger than maybe our shallow or vain thoughts in the beginning you know like when you're 18 years old getting tattooed you're not really thinking about history but i think as you get older and you're a marked person it certainly helps you navigate your life if you understand that you're connected to a richer history than just yourself mm -hmm. and how would you how would you describe the difference in the tattoo culture here in canada compared to maybe the u.s or somewhere else 
Yeah, I don't think we're very different than the U.S. or a lot of uh, Western societies. They're all pretty similar because the the history comes from, uh, you know, a few people and they kind of created uh, a, a pattern or a, a business model that works today. Uh, Japan would be a tef- definitely a completely different market uh, and operates completely differently. Just their outlook on, on what a tattoo is and uh, the legalities of working in that country uh, are completely different. Uh, the interesting thing is that, that those two worlds collided, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, the traditional American tattooing and traditional Japanese tattooing uh, met up, you know, artists from North America went to Japan and Japanese artists came to North America and shared information. And the, the West Coast style of tattooing uh, evolved from that and became this large body custom work uh, ethic and you, you see that today even you know with the way that north americans tattoo uh and it has some influence on the japanese as well but mostly you know north america is pretty much all the same europe's the same um third world countries definitely a little bit different like the philippines you know uh borneo and in malaysia they have uh, traditional tattooing continuing and people trying to bring that back within Canada. There's a strong movement right now to bring back uh, traditional indigenous tattooing. Uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, and I see that as a big change moving forward. I think people will start to embrace that and just regular mainstream people will see that as being a viable uh, connection to the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is there anything that you'd like to add, anything that you'd like to let me know or anyone else know? about the series yeah it's a it's a really interesting story you know a lot of these a lot of things happen uh in the past that we don't understand and we don't um we can't relate to uh and we can only focus on what we know presently and within this story we have just less than a handful of people who really started the custom tattoo trend in canada and and that they were so influential that they influenced a lot of artists in Europe and a lot of artists in the States. So as Canadian, uh, in the Canadian tattoo community, we can be really proud of these few guys, Dave Shore, Paul Jeffries, the Dutchman, uh, Brian Zuck, you know, they had a, an impact much bigger than uh, just within our nation. And I think the story really tells that very well. And I, I think you should, uh, I think you should watch it. <laughs> if you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i mean it's out there so like exactly uh i think it's a, a very great niche i think that um i definitely didn't know as much about the history of tattooing in canada and i think it's fascinating to see it um and learn about it especially from uh, this oral history i just feel like i really like the style that the episodes are constructed where it basically feels that we're having a little chat with these tattoo artists um learning from their experience uh and i think that's pretty cool um and so again thank you so much for taking the time to do uh this interview with me and i am excited for everyone to see this entire series i mean the last episode is coming out uh next week on july 26th and um it will stay on youtube right like it will yeah, it's going to live on YouTube unless we uh, figure out something different. But there'll be lots of bonus material that will continue to go up past next week with a little bit more intimate interviews with uh, certain artists to explore different topics. Uh, so, yeah, we're not done with it. 
And that was our short interview with Dave Allen talking about Hold Fast, Stay Gold, which is now out and for free on YouTube. Uh, the last episode of this nine episode series is coming out on July 26th, and each episode is about 10 to 15 minutes. So it's a perfect um, little bite size uh, episode for you to watch maybe in between things, maybe if you want a break. Uh, it's a great series overall, definitely check it out. And I hope you enjoy that and see you next time. Bye-bye. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back for the last time because it is the end of our show. I hope you enjoyed all of the reviews that we had today and the quick interview that Lua had. And yeah, make sure you check out Arts Club's I, Claudia, Steveston Heritage Sites, Queer Arts Festival, the um, Pride installation that Jade talked about, um, Art Downtown, or Gallery, and the Tattoo Documentary on YouTube. Yeah, everything, I think everything that we had on the show today was pretty cool. So I hope you thought so too. But we will be back with more cool stuff, more reviews and interviews and shout out. Not next week, but the week after that. So um, July 28th, we're not here, but August 4th, we'll be back. And we might be back live. Who knows? So stay tuned to see if we're going to be back live or pre-recorded from my um, little Harry Potter room. It's so funny. So I live in a basement suite and in my room, there's this little door that uh, you can open and it's under the stairs of, well, my landlord's house. And I call it my little Harry Potter room because I've only seen the first and the last Harry Potter movies. And one thing that I vividly remember from the first movie is that Harry's room was under the stairs and I am currently sitting under the stairs and recording this. And it's, it's pretty fun, not gonna lie. It's pretty fun. But live shows are more fun. <laughs> because, well, radio is very fun. It's, radio is so exciting. Anyways, well, okay. Um, <laughs> it's time for us to go, guys. I'll see you uh, next time. Make sure you check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and CITR.ca. And we're also on all social media. On Instagram, we're ArtSupportCITR. Twitter is CITR underscore ArtSupport. And our Facebook is ArtSupport on CITR 101.9 FM. FM. <laughs> if you would like to join us, join the Arts Collective. Uh, or if you would like to send us press releases that, or you want us to shout something out, you can email us at arts at citr.ca. And with that, folks, I'll leave you to it. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I'll catch you on the flip side. Goodbye!